0: So for me, that turning point was what am, what am I doing here, you know, what, what, what is my why, what, what can I really take effect of and what, what can I make a difference in this world about and all of a sudden, I started to look at the housing options that we were putting out on the market.
1: This is Property Investory where we talk to successful property investors to find out more about their stories, mindset and strategies. I'm Taran Shum and in this episode, we're speaking with Ian Yagarte, a former tradesman who has found success in property investment. He shares the stories of his life-changing moments, the value of being one of the only 12 members of the Future Housing Task Force and his passion behind creating more functional living spaces within the one home. As you can imagine, Ugarte has a busy life, so for him, sticking to a daily routine is key.
0: I actually get up about four o'clock in the morning. Um, I'll answer emails for about 45 minutes. I will do a jog somewhere between seven to 36k, depending on what my training is for a marathon. Um, come back. Uh, have a shower, get the kids to school, drive them to school. I'm one of those fathers who drops kids off. And then um, I'm in the office for two, three hours at tops. Um, and then the rest of the day, I take it pretty easy. Um, so we've got an office there that um, is full of staff that look after what we do. Yeah, look, I'm not a late sleeper. So I, I normally would try to get in bed by 8.30 when the kids go to bed. Um, obviously, there's times where we've got certain projects underway or uh, you know, webinars that I've got to run or teach some people doing some things and I might get to bed at 11.30, 12.30. I, I, can, I can survive a four-hour sleep for probably a month um, and then I'll need to do you know, what we call sleep bank and, and get back into the groove of just um, that running. So I do, I do love my running and I do love my exercise. Um, I don't love it while I'm exercising but geez, I like the finish
1: line when I'm done." Running up to 36 six kilometres every morning is not something that you just jump into. For Yugate, striving to support the Australian Indigenous community led him to discovering a new hobby.
0: It's an interesting thing because I was, um, you know, really early on, on the when we when we changed the way we were doing property and actually started to get to the point of um, what we would refer to as success, um, that was probably in about 2009, 2010 and I'd never really run more than 10 kilometres at any one time um, and I'm sitting there in a lounge room and – uh, Robert De Costello was being interviewed and he'd just started what they call the Indigenous Marathon Project. Um, and what he does is he goes into remote Aboriginal communities. He does the deadly, deadly run series, which is, you know, they, they take 5K runs. And then from that, Um, people apply to become part of the indigenous marathon project over um, six months they train them up to become marathon runners and they end up going over to new york and completing um, the marathon now for me i listened to that story and i watched if you ever seen i think it's called um running to america It's, it's on the abc it's an abc documentary and every person that's gone over since 2010 it's usually a team of somewhere between 7 to 15 people and has completed the marathon and from that what happens is they're promoting the um, locals in the community that can actually show. Now, they don't have to be the fit and healthiest people. They have to be leaders in the community that will, will be seen to be leaders. And they go off and they do the marathon, they come back, and they are absolute rock stars. And um, the change of health, you know, you know the, the huge amount of um, diabetes problems in, in our remote community at the moment is huge. Um, Kathy Freeman, for those people that didn't know, um, after winning the um, gold in Sydney, had actually got into a place of type 2 diabetes and um, she she went over in 2012 um, to complete the marathon and that was obviously the year that New York got called off. That was going to be my first marathon and I got to run around um, because I was supporting the Indigenous Marathon Project as a charity, um, I got to run around Central Park in New York with Kathy Freeman and, and Robert D Costello and, and people say to me, did you get a photo? I go, I don't need a photo, like until I get Alzheimer's, I'm going to remember that date for a long time um, And so, you know, that's a long story, but that's how I got into running. I heard it on the radio.
1: Ugate has found success in various aspects of his life. After completing his first marathon, running was no exception.
0: So, I've done uh, currently nine marathons. I did my first at uh, the age of 39. Um, I am one of only a 1,000 people in the world that have completed the six world major marathons, which includes New York, Chicago, um, Tokyo, London, Boston, and New York. Are they saying New York? There's another one in there. There's six of them in total. Um, I've now done that. I'm actually going off and now doing the six continents. Um, and so, sorry, the seven continents. And now I'm on to, I've got three more continents left. I'm doing Antarctica in March. Um, In late next year, I will also do um, South America and I've got to fit in an African in which the African will be my finale I think which will be doing um, six marathons over seven days across the Moroccan desert, one of the hardest marathons in the world um, obviously because you're doing six of them Um, and I'm looking forward
1: to that one. Going back in time, let's take a look at the childhood that influenced Ugarte to be as hardworking and driven as he is today.
0: So I grew up in Sydney, in the eastern suburb of Sydney, in, in a suburb next to Mascot called Eastlakes. And, um, you know, I don't have one of those childhoods where I can say that, I, you know, it was it was a really bad childhood and, um, you know, that I had to come from adversity. I came from a, a good middle-class family. Um, you know, my parents are Spanish um, immigrants, came to Australia in the um, 1970. I was born in 71. I was born in 73. And, um, you know, my dad became the first... Australian qualified plumber um, that was a migrant. So he actually went through the TAFE course as the first person and, and he had a good head, um, set of skill sets from being a boilermaker over in Spain. Uh, and so we grew up um, quite happily in the family as plumbers. Uh, my brother, I have a, an older brother who's nine years older than me and a younger sister who's seven years younger um, and so there was a fair distance between my sister and my brother and my brother when he got to age became a plumber as well.
1: After finishing high school, Yugate carried on the family tradition and set out to become a plumber.
0: When I got to the age of leaving school, I went to year 12, my dad said, I said to my dad, do you mind if I become a plumber? Because I don't really want to go to university. And my dad said, well, as long as you finish year 12, um, I'm quite happy for you to become a plumber. And I, I don't, it's not what I want you to do. But, you know, if, if that's what you want to do, that's fine. And I didn't really you know, I just thought to myself, well, this is what I'm, you know, it's a good way to be able to do something in the meantime, um, to have a job. And so essentially, we we work together as a family, we live together as a family, and um, we also socialize together as a family. And, and my first property investment was at the age of um, 19, and I was earning $222 a week in hand after tax. And my parents, as a technical, you know, as a true um, ethnic family, my parents, Put a deposit down on the house across the road, um, and ultimately it was as it was meant for me to um, move into with my um, then first long-term girlfriend. And so I lived at home. I worked with the business. I didn't get paid any overtime whatsoever, but my parents did put a deposit on a house for me, and it was costing. We were putting at the time, and this is 1992 I think it was, we were putting, um, I was putting $200 and my $222 of wage into um, that property and I still managed by the end of the year to save $800 so I was, I was a handy little saver when it came to it.
1: While Ugarte was putting everything into his first investment, his relationship took a toll. At the time, he was heartbroken but he didn't know this would soon change.
0: Now, um, the main problem with that it was obviously the long term girlfriend who was a little bit materialistic, um, didn't like the fact that I wasn't spending any money on it. So she left and broke my heart. Um, and so, um, growing up in the eastern suburbs was great. And we, you know, I then ventured out um, and, you know, we could say my wife will laugh that I, that I got her, that she got me on a rebound. Um, and so I met Christine soon after, probably about six or nine months after the girlfriend did leave me. Um, I was probably 21 years old at the time and you know Christine um, was a completely different um, woman, she was older too um, so she's technically a, a cougar, uh, she's five and a half years older than me.
1: Investing in property is a big decision for any couple. When Yugate and his wife decide to take the leap together, they embarked on an unexpected adventure.
0: Now, I always wanted waterfront property and when it comes to waterfront property in Sydney at the time, um, when I wanted to buy close to water, at least water views, was going to cost me five hundred to $550,000 and that was around the Maroubra area. And we think back at, that, um, at those times at $550,000, I would have mortgaged about 10 of them if we knew what Sydney was going to do. Um, because, you know, to buy something in Maroubra similar currently nowadays, I'd probably have to spend three to three and a half million dollars. But we took a we took a trip one day up the coast, um, towards Central Coast, and we stopped at a place called Borrow Waters. We went into the, um, into the shop by the wharf, and we looked in their shop, and the house for sale for two hundred thirty thousand dollars. And we go, cheese, that's cheap. That's waterfront property for two hundred thirty thousand dollars, an hour away from Sydney this has got to be something that we've got to look at. So within a couple of weeks, we'd actually moved into a property that was for sale. So it was my first negotiation in property, really. And all the deals that Christina and I have, I can honestly say, hand on my heart, that 100% of all the property deals we've done have never been a standard contract deal. We've never had a standard six-week contract or a standard term because we've always had some sort of condition in it. Now, this particular property we'd agreed to look at and purchase as long as we could rent it for three months to make sure that we could handle the area. Um, Brow Waters, for, for those of you who don't know, um, is a boat access property. So that means you have to park your car get into your own personal boat it was about a seven or eight minute trip up the river to get to your pontoon and step out on your pontoon and get out and and walk into your house which was great this property was great which we had a three-month um conditional clause in there um we moved in on the saturday on the sunday um i was a semi-professional um soccer player a football player um and so i was in a semi-professional contract on the saturday we moved in sunday we went out first game of the season and tore my cruciate ligament. And that was really the reason we didn't end up purchasing that property because there was 89 steps to get from the bottom of the river all the way up to the top.
1: Continue on the investment journey, his wife had shocks of her own.
0: In the meantime of the three months, we found a property just across the bay which was for sale. It was the original guy who'd started Alcan Aluminium in Australia. So we were super wealthy. It was his holiday home. And we... Um, We negotiated on that at $230,000. And it was a double block. Now we couldn't afford the block next door, which he also owned. So um, again, like every ethnic family, my father bought the block next door. <laughs> and, and and you can imagine. So you know we're an ethnic family, and as Christine's an Australian, true blue Australian, and um, she she was going, what the hell is going on here? The in-laws are moving in next door. This is full on.
1: After one major setback, this investment became a better deal than originally thought.
0: We end up going down when we. And again, it was probably one of those first properties where we learnt a lot because the first thing we did was before we went, um, during our five-day pulling-off period, we got the council to come in and, and look at the property. Now it was an original fisherman's shack and um, downstairs was a bar area and lounge room and upstairs was two bedrooms plus bathroom. It was quite a small place. Um, and when the council came in, they said, you know what, it's under height here your downstairs area. And it was an original fisherman's cottage. They'd sort of dug out and excavated underneath and put a slab down, but it didn't actually meet building height um, and code. So the council said to us, look, we can't make downstairs habitable. You can only really live upstairs. So we went back to the owners and we said to the owners, look, um, it's going to, it's not legal. Um, We need to renegotiate the price. Uh, We've had some pricing to actually jack the house up and get it back to its proper height so that we can live downstairs as well. Um, and we negotiated I think it was about $20,000 off the purchase price and we ended up in a position where it cost us $7,000 to jack the house up, get it to the right height and um, get going again. So-
1: Reflecting on their time together and the investment journey, Yugata and his wife decided to take their next steps.
0: And Christine came from a um, from a Christian family, a very fundamentalist Christian family. And, and you could see that um, for her father, it was very difficult to watch that we were living together without the bond of marriage. And so we decided um, we would get married. And then we said, well, what's the best day to get married? So no one will forget. We said Australia Day. Australia Day is the perfect day to get married. It celebrates who we are. Um, and then we can have a barbecue every, every Australia day and invite everyone over. So it'd be a great day. Now, the problem... The problem with that was that um, to, to be able to, mar- to to sign for a marriage certificate to get married on a certain day, you have to sign that one month and one day before you get married. So the only day we could do that was the 25th because it was one month and one day before the 26th. So we're two days away. Christine rings, rings up the local celebrant who turns out to be her high school teacher from when she was at school and um, we said, we'll meet you at the boat ramp. So we're running along the river in this little jet ski boat sort of thing that's got a, an outboard on the back of it and we go over a wash and the, the motor's not actually attached to the boat properly. So it tilts the motor, throws us off sidewards and we end up in the water. Um, and, you know, one of the locals comes out and drags us out onto the beach and so he and I are there trying to restart the motor. But the problem with all of that was I had my backpack with our passports and my license and the whole lot that went straight to the bottom of the drink. So, <laughs> so we should have seen it as a sign some people might have said not to get married but we still signed the um, certificate on that day so we could get married and get the application in. So um, when we did get married, we... Um did it as a housewarming, um, surprise, a housewarming party. We didn't want anyone knowing to, that we were getting married. The only people that knew were our direct family. So I had all my friends over. Christine had all the friends over. We had family, having a barbecue. Everyone um, brought a dish on the day. So it's salad or you know a, a dessert. We provided meat um, and alcohol. Now, it cost us $1,000, including Christine's dress, um, to do the um, marriage on that day, the wedding on a day. We picked everyone up on houseboats, we dropped them at home, um, we were having a great party, everyone was having a great time. We walked out onto the pontoon um, and we got married on the pontoon. And I just always remember looking at my friend from school and looking at his face and literally his jaw was hitting the ground. It was such a great day.
1: As you got, his personal life is thriving, His professional life was just beginning.
0: So I just had got my plumbing license. So I was I was able to go out and start my own business. And I said to my, my father says, do you want to buy into our business? And I said, look dad, you know, we live together, socialize together and we work together. I think it'd be too much. I'm going to go out and I'm going to start my own business. And the reason I want to start my own business dad is because you work too hard. Um, and i know that in my business, I won't have to work as hard. And he laughed at me, right? And I didn't understand why uh, until a year later where I'm working night and day, seven days a week because I'm just trying to pay the bills, you know? And with hindsight, you know, it would have been a better outcome. I wouldn't be where I am today, um, but it would have been a better outcome to be able to work with them because, um, you know, they've got a really good functional business with a good set of team um, that works with it. So, um, so essentially, I moved down there. And during my time as an apprentice plumber, I was a um, competitor in what they called at the time work skills which is now called world skills and it's a skill based competition for all trades um, and you compete at regional level if you're in regional you go to national level if you're in the national level you end up going and competing against other countries and um you can win gold medals like the Olympics. So it'll be the skill Olympics that you'd be attending. Now, I won a silver medal um, in the Australians. So I didn't get the, I didn't get the gold um, and, you know, it, it, uh, that it wasn't meant to be. Um, I was probably, without ego, the better candidate, but it just happened on the day that it didn't turn out for me. So um, so because of that, though, I made some really good contacts within Intake New South Wales. And having good hand skills is always a really good tool um, and I always, and, and up till recently, I didn't realize, but up till recently, I've always been a teacher. I realized, I only realized it recently that I am a teacher. So even every time an apprentice came on for my dad, I would always be the one teaching. And <clears> one of the TAFE guys that was involved with Skills said to me, you know what? We need, um, some younger people coming in. Would you mind doing some part-timing? And I said, I don't mind doing some part-timing at all. I was literally, um probably only had my license for a couple of weeks and I was probably one of the youngest teachers within New South Wales at the age of 24. So I was doing some part-time work and essentially that led up to me being able to do part-time work which paid for our mortgage. So my, my time Within the part time ranks, would pay for the mortgage, which meant that any time any work that I did within our own businesses um, would go towards being able to, um, you know, live our life basically. So our mortgage was taken care of by TAFE. I then became a full time teacher in TAFE, New South Wales, um, after doing some volunteer work in um, a place called Woojal Woojal in Cape York, uh, where we built a, um, a tourist um, shack and toilet for, uh, a local Aboriginal community that were doing, um, tours to waterfalls. And so they, they needed somewhere where they could take the white people to. And, um, so they could go to the bathroom rather and go into their community and came back, got my tape New South Wales full-time teaching job. I then became an acting head teacher in, um, plumbing and a full-time teacher in plumbing. So head teacher in plumbing. And that was great. And then, um, Just out of the blue one day, starting to work on my motivations um, of doing the same thing over and over again, which is what you have to do in property, find your success, find your bread and butter, do it over and over again. And over a period of eight weeks, I just worked on doing the same thing. And that was, you know, um, answering emails at the same time of the day, um, uh, making sure I answered phone calls at the same time of the day, make sure I put appointments in at a certain time of day. And within eight weeks, I actually applied for a job, which was just a pie in the sky job. Um, which was the Assistant Director of Business, which was a three IC of TAFE New South Wales, um, Sydney Institute. And I got the job. So I took seven pay scale hits in one um, single leap. And I walked into an office at the age of 36 um, with the nearest person to me being 20 years my senior um, and, and, and fit in really well. Um, and, and, you know, really had a great time.
1: While continuing to work at TAFE, you gotta invested in more properties. This quickly became a negative experience, but there was one positive. Learning the danger of negative gearing.
0: Having seen um, you know, my father buy property and, and my father bought property at peaks um, twice and lost money on both of them. And so I thought I'd just follow suit and do exactly the same. So um, I I had it um so we were full-time in browse so we were the first of a young generation moving into that area it had been holiday homes for a long time um mostly older people and we were the first couple to arrive and within six months there was probably another six young couples that said you know what this is good value for money i'm moving from sydney i'm moving up here full time and um the house next door was put up for sale and an accountant bought it who's still my accountant um And about two years into him having that as a holiday house, I rang him and said, listen, um, we're moving back to Sydney. I found a factory. I'm going to do a factory conversion um, and I'm going to sell Burraura and I'm going to use that as a deposit for buying this factory. And it was in Botany, this factory. Um, and and uh, Morrie was his name. Morrie still is his name. Morrie rings me back after five minutes. He says, mate, you don't need to sell it. What I want you to do is go and see the bank manager refinance against your Water. It's gone up in value. Take that, put a deposit on over there. Um, it'll be cash flow neutral. And, um, you can, you can still continue to stay for our waters. And, um, in the next few years, you can develop the one in Botany. I went, that's a great idea. That's the sort of accountant I want. Now, as it turns out, what I thought was mutually geared, it was mutually geared as long as we only took into consideration, um, the cost of the money that was on the mortgage of the, of the factory. What I hadn't counted was that, um, the money that we'd taken out of our own home was costing us money. So I'd never actually factored that in. So it was negative geared. It was negative geared by about $8,000 a year. Now, we were struggling for money. So I'm thinking, you know, this is absolutely crazy. I'm struggling for money. Um, Obviously, I'm paying way too much tax. Um, Even after negative gearing, I still haven't got enough money. So what I'll need to do is go out and find another negative geared property. I'm going to buy another one so I've got more money at the end of the year and then my tax problems have disappeared and I've got more money in the bank account. And so lo and behold, after only buying into seven different properties, um, we were at $36,000 negative cash flow. And at that point in time, um, I was on $96,000 wage. So when you look at that, we had $96,000 of wage. um, Take some tax off that we're about $66,000. Take the negative gearing of $36,000 off that, we were down to $30,000. And at the time, we had three kids. So um, three children, a wife to feed, and myself on $30,000 a year, and our Breath was holding out for the end of financial year so that we could get our out of our thirty six we might get ten or twelve thousand dollars back. and all it did was um, you know just to see that check and those are days where you actually got a check from the ATO and I'd look at that twelve thousand dollars and I'd just breathe a sigh of relief and I'd go right all right, we're good now. Um, We'll be able to survive the next two or three months without having any problems. And all that check did was actually pay for the next lot of negative hearing anyway. And it was just this vicious circle. And it was really quite painful um, to go through. And it was quite demanding on our relationship. And we never actually really got to the crux at that point in time of why we never had any money. Um, But You know, we just—I wasn't ever focused on money. It wasn't a big thing. The only focus I had on money is how little we had in the bank account, not where it was actually really going. And and it's—and it's—it's actually something that we see a lot with the with the clients that we work with on a daily basis. That you never get to—they never actually stop enough to say where am I spending my money and what is a good investment, um, you know, as opposed to a bad investment. Now, you know, I know that there's plenty of investors out there that say negative gearing is is a good thing. I will never, ever, ever negative gear again unless I'm buying a property for a specific reason, for a year or two, because I'm going to develop it into the future. But I will never go out and buy a negative property. It makes no sense whatsoever to actually lose money on an investment when you can actually do strategies to get really great capital growth um, properties that will also return your cash flow. Um, and you know, and that's that's something that we've we've been able to master over the last few years.
1: Tafe, New South Wales, was Uganda's last job before becoming a full-time property investor. There were two specific events that motivated him to change his life.
0: There's always that one point in someone's life when there's a set of circumstances may well it be one or a couple that hits at about the same time that puts you in a scenario of change and you don't you, you don't have any choice but to change because it's, the bricks just hit you in the face um, so now we're at a point where um, something has to change now we were sitting there um, in two thousand in 2010 was the major point turning point for me personally. Um, and so we've written a book, uh, my wife and I, the small is the new big health, wealth, love, and happiness. And it's a holistic way of looking at life, making small incremental changes to, to make a difference in the big scheme of things. Now, um, in, in that book, I tell this story about sitting on the estuary of a place up at Coffs Harbour um, where we went to, we'd go to holidays every year and we would share it with, with another bunch of tape teachers and um, all of them plumbers, obviously. And I'm sitting on the side of the estuary there, and um, by stealth, one of my mate's kids, who was about eight year old at the time, came up out of the water and looked at me and said, You're Jenny Craig's biggest challenge. Now, for that, like it was, everyone laughed and even I laughed, but it really cut to my core. And for me, I didn't actually think that I was overweight, but every time um, I took a new job in Cape, New South Wales from part-time teacher to full-time teacher I put on five kilos and then from full-time to head teacher I put on five kilos and from head teacher to assistant director of business I put on five kilos so I was essentially 16 kilos overweight um, for my size now I'm not a tall fellow right I'm I'm quite short I'm five foot one I think or five foot three in the old scale Um, and and you know, when, when you're 16 kilos overweight at that sort of, you know, when you, you should be about 63 and you're weighing 16 more, that was, you know, that, that was a huge impression on me that I thought I was actually, and I had all the excuses in the world, you know, I'd had two knee reconstructions, you know, and, and I'd hit 30 and, and all that sort of stuff that went through my head that said, and they're all just excuses, they're all just crap that I have fed my brain, right? So that, that incident happened and I thought, geez, that kid has just given me the most honesty that anyone would ever give me. And, and you know, sometimes with kids, we actually don't give them the ability to to be able to tell the truth. Um, we stop them from doing it. And and you know, when I wrote this and um, and his mother read the story, she says, I'm so sorry, I can't believe it. Do you not see how beneficial that was to me that your son did that? Like I have to be forever in the rest of my life grateful for him saying that to me.
1: The second event occurred at Ugarte's work. Whilst he was once passionate about his job, it was becoming a source of negativity.
0: Now that was one occurrence, and then because I loved my job so much. Now this is a problem when you love your job and you're 36 grand negative. It doesn't really occur to you that your life is getting in a shambles because you just love turning up to work. And um, as a teacher, I was turning up and doing something that I loved, and I still love doing. Right, so. Um, Everything was great. Like, I had a six week um, holiday at the end of the year. We've gone away to Coffs Harbour. This kid's told me that I'm overweight. I go back, I turn up on the 27th of January 2010, one day after our anniversary. I walk up the stairs and walk into my office, and I've got a new boss. And that new boss is the sort of guy that, um, you know, they put in a corner somewhere so they can't do damage. The problem was it was in the corner of our plumbing office. And that new boss, he tore my world apart in two days. And, and to this day, I'm still emotional about not being able to um, be able to, to secure myself in a position was $36,000 negative, And then all of a sudden you go, holy crap, you know, how do I get out? $694 was coming out of my pocket every Monday morning to pay for the negative gearing. And so when I didn't love my job, two days after that I went home. My wife saw how unhappy I was, um, and I was completely unhappy. The kids became unhappy, and the, and the pain and negative gearing really got to start, you know, inflicting into into my soul. It actually started to tear me apart. And for the first time in many years, after loving my job, I'm now in a position where I hate my job, and um, I'm no longer passionate about the thing that I'm passionate about. And I need to get out, and I need to get out quick, right? And so. Um, you know, we were fortunate um, that we were in a position when someone had, had said, you know, go and see this positive cash flow seminar and, and eventually we went to do that. Now, for me, those two pivotal moments, um, one month apart, were, um, were, were the one basis of change that I needed to have, the pain that I needed to have to change. Now, um, you know, having worked uh, at different levels with different people on their own personal development um, and it's something that I'm very passionate about, helping people move forward, I know that there's two styles of people. There are people that are led by um, the carrot. So, you know, when you talk about the donkey and putting a carrot in front of it, um, people that are led by what's the goal, what's out there, I really want to achieve that, I want to get it. Then you've got the opposite and um, using the same donkey, the only way to move some donkeys forward is by whipping them on the ass and making a move. And for me, unfortunately, my makeup and my motivations and attitudes are that style of person. So you have to whip me pretty hard and that pain was something that made a big difference, a massive difference difference to our change and our evolution to where we sit today.
1: Attending this seminar changed the way that Yugate viewed property investment.
0: My ahaha moment came when um, I sat in a positive cash flow seminar. Um, and you know, two years earlier, I'd been told, "Go and see the seminar. It's amazing. You'll be able to learn how to get positive gearing out of um, out of property." And I said, "Don't be stupid. Can't you see this is like a pyramid building system? What they'll do is they'll get you in there. Um, it's a multi-level marketer. You'll sign up, and then someone signs up underneath you, and the person on top gets all the money." And um, and that was the ignorance that I was travelling with. Right? So um, so. After that had happened, you know, after those two incidents had happened, I went to that same person that told me to go and see the positive cash flow property and he had left work. He no longer needed a job because he bought positive cash flow property. I said, show me what you got. I don't understand how this works because I know property and I know negative gearing and I know that you can't do positive gearing. He says, well, here's my property. This is how much it costs me. This is how much it earns. And then at the end of the year, I've got money left in the bank account. I went, you serious? He goes, yep, there's the figures. You Have a look at them. And so I went, okay, beautiful. I said, I have to go and see this person that you went to see um, and I want to make sure that um, I do the same thing. And so I sat in that seminar and I looked up there and I said, wow, those figures are amazing. They're unbelievable. Now they were obviously all success stories and, um, I, and I was convinced straight away. And I said, I've got to do this. This is something I've got to do. I go back home and I say to my wife, look, I've done something amazing for you, Christine. I've signed you up to this program. What I need you to do is learn it um, you know, come back to me once you 've learned it all. tell me what it 's about, and then i 'll decide what we 're going to buy and I, and, and <laughs> it's it 's just abs- it 's so hilarious to think that that was the way it was now i I turned up there I was smart enough to actually put myself on as a partner I turned up at the boot camp and about um, one day, probably halfway through the first day, I remember thinking to myself, this is not something that you can learn by proxy. Like, You've got to make a serious attempt. You've just had two life-changing um, occurrences happen to you. Someone's told you you're fat and someone else has um, ruined your job. You need to make a change and it's not going to happen by acting the way that you used to act. And so for me, sitting in that seminar was a pivotal moment.
1: On property investment journeys, challenges can arise that make you feel defeated. When this happened to Ugate, the kindness of a stranger was the extra push that he needed.
0: Our first project um, that we went in to do actually lost us money but by losing us money it taught us so much and and there was a, there was a, there was a few components to losing money in this one. Firstly, it was that I still wasn't detailed enough and um, to do a proper, full due diligence feasibility so I sort of guessed numbers um and and that wasn't that wasn't because of the education it's because I I lacked the education I didn't take the time to learn it and um so from that loss though I probably picked one of the hardest um no the second hardest so um another another great interesting story because this was really the leapfrog step that happened for us got went into this project um we had a nine-month settlement on it uh, the GFC kicked in and all of a sudden the lending tightened up. So, the lending tightened up in our nine-month settlement, so trying to get finance for that for that project was really difficult. And I remember with my dad sitting at the RSL, Botany RSL, and on the back of a serviette, I did the feasibility, right? So um, I, I said that I was going to spend $120,000 on the subdivision. Now, it, as it turns out, the local inspector that inspected all the subdivisions towards the end of the project, um, and I'll tell this story in a second, he said to me, that's probably the second hardest subdivision I've seen on the coast. It was up on the central. Coast of New South Wales. And um, so I happened to pick a really, really difficult subdivision as a first subdivision. I shouldn't have done that. Um, but it taught me everything that I know now. And it meant that I could go off and do a main thing. So I call it my property hex fee. Um, you know, rather than going to university and end up with a 70 grand job, I actually, you know, I paid for losing on that project. But what it did for me in the future was earn me two hundred, three hundred, four hundred thousand dollars on the next projects that we did. Um, but that project was was quite interesting because I was still in paid employment and um, we just had everything up against us. Everything worked in the wrong way um, and plus the fact that we were inexperienced. And um, I'm sitting on the side. It was a 110-metre long driveway. We had 16 neighbours around us. It was 25% grade one direction, 25% grade the other direction, so it was quite a, a slopey block. Um, we had to dig six metres down to do a sewer connection. Uh, we had to bring a hydrant main in from the street um, to get to the back block. It was a full on subdivision. Like, I learnt so much. And um, the, 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 Budget of one hundred twenty thousand dollars got spent just on the retaining walls on the site. Not alone, not let alone the concrete, the excavation, and everything with it. So I'm sitting on the side of this um, driveway one day, rain, clay, everything, and the this inspector had turned up, and um, he and 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 I was in tears. I was literally in tears. I was so down about it all, and he had a piece of paper in his hand. Um, and he was walking up the driveway, and he saw me, and he obviously saw that I wasn't in a good state. And he, and I look back at it now, and I know he folded the piece of paper and he put it in his back pocket. And he says, "What's going on, mate?" And I said, "I'm oh, this thing is absolutely killing me. I don't know what to do. I don't know where to go. I don't know what you know. It's just really draining me." And for whatever reason, you know, sometimes in life people just come along. And this inspector is, is wasn't known to be the nicest guy in the world. He. He absolutely poured his heart out. He looked at me and he said, you know what, mate? He said, I see guys like you come along all the time. You're young, you want to go, you want to have a go at it. You do your first project, you lose money. Most of you disappear. Some of you hang around and you do the second project and you break even on the second project. And if you can go on and hang on to the third project, he says, you guys do really, really well. He looked at me straight in the eyes and he said to me, I want you to do three projects. And with that, he turned and walked down the hill, got back in his car, and drove away. Now, what I now know was that day, with all the rain that was going on, I had clay spilling out onto the street and going into the stormwater, and I was trying to control it. And he'd actually come to give me a fine, an environmental fine, for what we were doing accidentally on this site. But instead, he folded that piece of paper up, put it in his pocket, gave me the best advice that I had ever been given to property. And walked away, and you know, to this day, I just, you know, I wish, I wish I could find this guy because I can't find him. I just, I just love to hug him, you know, because he just did so much for me on that one day. You know, it was amazing.
1: This project taught Ugarte many lessons. One of the most valuable being: do a project in a price point that's not going to hurt you.
0: If you want to do a subdivision, don't do what I do and go and buy, do a subdivision that costs a lot of money. Go and do a subdivision in a little regional town where it might cost you hundred grand to buy the block and do the subdivision. Now, I know you will not make a lot of money out of it. I also know that if you lose money, you won't lose a lot of money out of it. But the process of subdividing a block of land at $100,000 and subdividing a block of land at $2 million is no different. The process is exactly the same. So go out, try it somewhere else. Um, and come back and then try something bigger. And I also always say, if you go out and you try a strategy in any strategy in property for the first time and you come back and you break even, I'm ecstatic for you because what you've just learned is a full university degree that will earn you money from this day forward forever. So if you make a profit, man, you should be um, going out for dinner for a few nights just to celebrate the fact that you made a profit out of the first time that you tried a strategy. And don't be scared of trying it. Just go in and get stuck into it.
1: After completing this project, Ugate started to find his niche in property investment.
0: So we went through that and we did that subdivision, we sold off. Um, We got to a point where we bought um, a couple of positive cash flow properties and some of them were manufactured and and, um, some of them were um, already so they're already set up. and already cash flow positive. And they were the times where you could go out and just buy it straight up. The, 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 the major one we did was um, a mascot development that we bought. It was a shop um, downstairs and it had a three-bedroom apartment upstairs and a two-bedroom behind. Now, at the time, we were looking, should we buy a PPR in the area for about $700,000? But for $655,000, I bought a um a property that had potential for earning income. Uh, we bought it off a an older um, Greek man who was advised to sell it because he wouldn't get the pension, um, which was bad advice. And he was receiving at the time $420 a week rent. And we decided to um, buy it. Uh, we didn't want the tenants in there. They'd been there for a long time. We did some work to the property and we took the rent from 420 to 1235 I think. And that made that a twenty-two, dollars I think, or $27,000 positive cash flow property in mascot um, growing at the rate that Sydney prices were growing at. And so that was our real stem into the market to say, wow, this really works. So um, having the multiple and the smaller spaces started to twig something in my mind. Now, we had gone off and we followed the mining boom. We had bought mining properties. We do have exposure to mining and it was great while it was high, um, but when it's down, it's down. And so currently, we've obviously got some negative yield properties that aren't sellable, that were positive yield properties. But the smart thing that we did was, um, and at the time working with clients, we also said, if you're going to go and buy a mining property, make sure you've got three metro properties to back it up. Um, and whilst you're getting cash flow, make sure you're paying debt as down as hard as you can, because while you might have debt of four hundred thousand dollars today, and you've got cash flow of a hundred grand. Um, that could turn around very quickly, and it did. So for those people that pay down their debt, you know, on a property that was had a mortgage of four hundred, is now got a at mortgage two hundred. You obviously don't need the same amount of cash flow to get yourself into a neutral position, which is basically what we did. Um, but from there, what had happened was that we started to investigate a number of different outcomes, and so let's talk about four years ago. So we're two thousand. 2012, 13, 14. Um, we were on the roll. I was going to be the biggest property developer that you'd ever seen anywhere in the world, um, and I was so so money hungry. I was so driven for by the dollar. Um, and something happened. Something happened for me very quickly, and it happened overnight. And it was literally um, getting out of bed one day and saying that I was very unhappy. Um, I suffer from anxiety. <laughs> sorry, Colin, I suffer from anxiety. And, you know, um, it's interesting, you know, I can speak to 800 to 1,000 people at any one point in time and I, I could literally stand there naked and have not one level of anxiety. But when it comes to watching a dollar going a downward direction, I will stare at the ceiling for eight hours every night. And and that anxiety, um, you know, led me to a place where I said, you know, what am, what am I doing socially? What am I really doing? to actually benefit others because I thought that money was going to make me happy. And what I didn't realize was that it doesn't make you happy, that happiness comes from a point of within yourself. And I had to really start working on, and I'm thankful, thankful that I've got some very beautiful people around me, um, including business and life coaches and my wife, who see, who see ahead of schedule that I'm on a, I'm on a spiral um, and I don't have to spiral anymore.
1: This was a turning point for Ugate, from which he discovered the high income real estate system.
0: High res, which is concentrating on smaller spaces, um, and in particular, um, looking at executive rental. Holiday rental, short stay. Um, what we call HMO, House of Multiple Occupation or a legal way to be able to do share houses. And more importantly, rooming houses and boarding houses. Now, as soon as I say rooming houses and boarding houses, everyone in their mind automatically goes to the perception of, um, okay, you're dealing with drug dealers and criminals and bikies and um, pedophiles and you know the decrepit part of society. And that may have been the view in 1960s, but I can tell you that since we started building rooming houses and boarding houses for ourselves and teaching people how to invest in them, I can tell you that we've got granite bench tops, we've got self-contained units, and all we're doing is building little flat or studios, which are high demand in, in the marketplace. Now, most people don't realize this, and, and I'll give you some statistics. Um, I work... Um, um, so I'm a board member of the future housing task force. It's an invi- inv- invitation position. Um, and there's 12 of us on there and my specialty area is small spaces, um, rooming houses and boarding house across the country. So when it comes to the country, I am the leading expert on knowing different policies and how they work in its umbrella. So the big picture, um, scenario, and then we've got, um, assistants in different states. Now, um, we've been working with the Tasmanian government and I'm very, very excited to say that the Tasmanian government is an unbelievable... It's a perfect storm right now. We've got a very good government leading very well with some bureaucrats that are listening to the politicians and um, we've sat in front and there's actually a job title in Tasmania. He's called the Red Tape Coordinator. That's his job title, Rob. So it, it almost beats Master of the Universe. So um, his job title is to sit there and say... If you put a policy in front of me and I agree with it, I won't even go to the um, to the government employees. I will go straight to the minister. I'll show it to the minister. If the minister agrees with it, we'll put it through parliament right away and we'll get it approved within six weeks. And we've been working with the Tasmanian government now. And I, I, the reason I bring up the Tasmanian government is um, we put a policy in front of them that they probably are going to put in the next two to three months is going to be um, put into the state-based policy. In Tasmania currently right now on the housing waiting list, there's 3,700 people on the housing waiting list. Out of that 3,700, 60% of them are single and 20% of them are couples. So you could say that 80% of that list only require a studio and a one-bedroom apartment. And yet the housing stock in the way for the public housing, um, uh, 80% of their housing stock are three, four and five-bedroom houses.
1: Discovering the high res was a monumental step for Yugate it allowed him to continue helping his community.
0: So what's happened in Australia is that we build the biggest houses in the world at 246 square meters, we have two and a half people living in every house whereas we used to have In 1881, we had five and a half people living in 35 square metres. In 1960, we had just under four people living in 85 square metres. And now we've got 246 square metres, 2.5 people living in every house. Um, And we've got 12 million empty bedrooms tonight. So affordability was the point that I said, how can I make a difference to what I do on a daily basis? Rather than going out and doing a project to make as much... Possible money as I could. How can I help out community and family? You know, I remember growing up at, um, in my parents' house and East Lakes, and the house next door was a cladded home, and we were living in a spackled render home with with um, arches and bars on the window. Two completely different homes, two completely different cultures. But the girl next door, the lady next door, was my auntie Carmel. And she actually fed me every morning before I got to school. And I didn't realize until the age of 11 that the white chick next door was actually not really my blood auntie. She was actually just the lady next door. And, and this for me was what I decided from a social change I wanted to bring back um, into the community. I wanted to bring back the social aspect of who we are as community and bring back affordability. And, and the reason, and the way the way we do this is, is really quite simple. Remember, we've got 12 million empty bedrooms. Um, currently, government can't afford to put housing out to the community because they haven't got any money. So they should be concentrating on people like you and I, um, and your listeners that have zero to six properties as investment properties, and be able to convert those four-bedroom, two-bathroom crap houses into something that's usable. Now, I know this because all we do now is high-res strategies on creating more functional living spaces within the one home and um, by doing that, you've got this massive funnel of people that are looking for housing. The only reason a couple rents a four-bedroom house is they don't have a choice to rent anything else.
1: Wanting to create more functional living spaces in the one home? let you to it is property investing strategy
0: our key strategy our what we call our bread and butter strategy is to do a simple subdivision of a 1 into 2 and then we whatever we build on those will be a high higher strategy so on this particular one um, we built uh, two duplexes which are HMO designed. So they're actually what we call a 1B building which has universal compliance over disability access into the property um, and can be rented into separate portions. So each one of them has three, it's a three bedroom, three bathroom in each side. Essentially we've got 12 bedrooms, 12 bathrooms. Um, and in that, in that property, if I was a standard investor, it are worth about 450. Um, each they cost us so they, they're worth about 1.8. They cost us about 1.36. So we've made we've made a good two hundred, three hundred thousand dollars in in equity in that property. A standard investor would have built a normal three bedroom, two bathroom or three bedroom, whatever, um, and would rent them for four fifty a week. But we're getting seven hundred dollars a week because of the way we've built. Them. And so that turned that property. If we would decided to keep all four as a standard investor, we would have had a negative cash flow of about somewhere between twelve dollars to $15,000 but instead we've actually got a positive cash flow of, of somewhere between twenty dollars
1: to $30,000. Not only does this strategy help the community, it will likely benefit yourself.
0: So you can see that by doing a high risk strategy, not only are you meeting the needs of the community, but you're actually doing yourself really well by cash flow strategy. Um, You can manage to keep more properties, which means in 10 years' time you can double its value. And on top of that, you're actually taking the pressure off the housing market because um, families can rent family homes and people that want to rent small spaces can rent small spaces. Then they can go off and they can afford to start saving some money because they don't have to pay for a full house. They pay for part of a house. They've got their own own self-contained area. They can save money over two or three years. They meet a partner, they save even more money, and then they can get into their first home. Now, I can actually sell a 1st home buyer one of those properties for about $8,000 if they've got really good income and they can get a high LVR. They could get into that property for $8,000 using the 1st home buyer's grant and stamp duty exemption and end up in the property for living there for about $100 a week Um, whilst they rent out other parts of the property which they can do as their first home. It doesn't say that you can't do that. And after living in for six months to a year, they can then move out and turn that into a positive cash flow property of about $300 to $400 as their first home. And this is what the problem is with our marketplace is that we've got developers building four-bedroom houses and Gen Y is wanting the end product instead of working their way up.
1: As well as Generation Y, there is another demographic that Ugarte is hoping to help with this strategy.
0: Currently, right now, we have um, the biggest growing rate of homelessness in this country is a 55-year-old plus woman. Now, these are the women that were told when they were younger, marry someone who's got a good job, and you'll be be looked after for life. They didn't tell them it's unlikely that you'll like them in 30 years' time. They've looked after a house for the last 30 years. Their children have grown up. They get to a point of financial settlement, and they have very little. And the, we have a huge amount of these uh, of this demographic renting our rooms, and they are brilliant tenants. They are the best tenants you can imagine. Um, and the, un- the, the other part of the problem with a 55-year-old-plus woman is she gets settled in, she gets her independence back, she gets a phone call from her 70-year-old parents, and they say... I don't know how to look after dad anymore. You're going to have to come and help me. And they, they really are in a crap sandwich, the 55-year-olds, and, and it's an awful place to be. But what I can say is that every morning I get up, I know that I'm making a difference and a change to that demographic. I'm making a change to 70-year-olds, and I'm making change to Gen Ys. Now, um, the reason we actually put the high-res program together was that Christine and I might be able to do 20, 30, 40 uh, properties a year, Right. In the end, we wouldn't be actually making a dent in the market which is why we did high res. We know there's a huge demand and if we can teach other people to do exactly the same, then we can get to the point where we can actually say in Australia that the great Australian dream of buying your own home is actually within reach for every part of the generation and that's, that's why we do what we do.
1: To become a success in property investment, like Yagate, he urges the importance of education rather than going in blind.
0: I think the major problem with people that want to invest in property is that they see, they go out and they see someone become successful and they idolise them. So let's, you know, you look at the, you'd have to look at the, um, you know the Packers of the world and the and the Trumps of the world to use Trump, but Branson's. I mean, Trump is a, a very successful property investor. Um, Branson. Um, when you look at Australia, you know you've got you've got Garner and you've got um, Chris Gray and you've got all these other investors. And people go, I just want to be exactly like them. I'm going to go out and I'm going to do what Ian did, not do any education whatsoever, and I'm just going to buy property because I know I'm going to be rich at one at one point in time. I absolutely agree that you will be rich if you bought property today, even if it was the worst deal you could possibly buy, as long as you could afford to hold it. Um, because in ten years time we know that on average it's gonna double and ten years from that it's gonna double again. I needed education. Because whilst we were out there buying negative property because the government you know, for whatever reason promotes that it's a good thing to do, um, we were never going right. All we are doing was just following the hurt um, and you know, with that classic case of, you know, there's all that saying that if you do follow the hurt, eventually what happens is you'll just end up stepping in their
1: poo. When it comes to personal habits, another tool that you uses to achieve success is having specific goals. i
0: would never ever written a goal down on paper to actually clarify what it really was. Previous to that, it was, yeah, I'm going to be a millionaire or um, I'm going to be rich or I'm going to be, um, I'm going to own a Porsche, or I'm going to own whatever. There was never anything ever written down that had any meaning to it, and no why. There was never a why in anything that I ever thought about. Now, interestingly enough, most people that want to invest in property want to do it so they can become rich. And um, having read a, a number of different books that we read, um, I, I picked out a quote recently that said, rich people have a lot of money and wealthy people have time to spend it. So, so for me, I, I, I latched onto that and said, well, okay, well, I want to be wealthy. I want to be in a position where I have the point to be able to get up in the morning and choose what, what I want to do, and which is help other people. Um, and so for me, once I sat down and set our goals, Christina and I both set our goals in all areas of our life. So we did in our wealth, health, our opportunity. So opportunity is um, you know, what, what can come up for you, our love um, and our relationship and the evolution of who we want to be. And so we set those goals in those five areas, and they were detailed, and then we broke those tasks down. We then put them on to, so I, I write things. Christine loves to put things on spreadsheets. We put it onto a PowerPoint, and then we put it onto a screensaver on our computer. So whenever we're sitting – we don't have a TV at home, so whenever we're sitting, um, our computer in the background is actually rolling through a screensaver. We can actually see what our goals are – flashing between our eyes and our un- unconscious mind is picking those up constantly being able to put that through our filters and manage to put it in the back of the brain so that when you are driving and and i always say that you know you know what it's like when you go out and you buy a new car and it's a, it's the it's the yellow it's the new yellow sports car no one's got a new yellow sports car you go into the dealership you pick up the yellow sports car you drive out the door and all of a sudden you see 10 of the same sports car and it's because you're now aware that they're there so When you write your goals down, when the opportunity comes up, all of a sudden you're aware that it's there and and your brain just automatically goes, I need that. Um, And you don't even know. you're, You're unconsciously achieving because you've consciously written something down.
1: Thank you to Ian Ugarte, our guest on this episode of Property Investory.